thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Helen Scales. Hello, Helen. Hello. And with me, Chris Smith. In this week's show, a way to store digital information that, the discoverers say, should last a billion years. If on the off chance you need to keep your family photos for that long. Also, killer Kimodo dragons. Scientists have discovered why their bites are so lethal. And how people with Down syndrome are protected from cancer. They don't get it at least not very often, and now we know why, and we may even be able to copy the trick to help other people too. And we'll be hearing how in just a second. Helen. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're looking into the body's biggest organ, and that's your skin. We'll be hearing how scientists have discovered what causes skin scarring and how we might be able to stop it. Where skin colours originate. In other words, why do we come in all sorts of different colours? Some of us are black, some of us are white. And why are some people, especially white, the albinos, who've got no skin pigment at all? Plus, we'll be doing an experiment to show you why a blast of blue light benefits newborn babies with jaundice. I hope you'll now be able to see that the yellow colour has now migrated into the water layer just through that photochemical reaction. Now this little baby can do exactly what you or I do. And he is excreting the yellow bilirubin via his urine. Indeed, and I sincerely apologise to anyone that now feels that they need the toilet, having heard that. That was chemist David Phillips, and he'll be with us very shortly to explain the science behind the phototherapy that we do to treat kiddies with jaundice. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, increasingly in the modern world, we're trusting, and perhaps not necessarily in a very... Uh, ideal way, digital technology to store our treasured memories. We're using things like photographs, we're using things like videos, we're using things like audio, and instead of putting them in photo albums, we're putting them on disk drives and relying on those things to store this data degradation-free for as long as we might want it. But here's the reality. Despite the fact that the Doomsday Book, which was written 900-plus years ago and remains readable today, when the BBC recommissioned the Doomsday Project in 19, uh, 900 years later to celebrate the 900th anniversary, they put a snapshot of life in the UK on two massive laser discs, which they distributed to schools and things. And those laser discs have recently had to be updated and the data on them put onto new media because the discs had degraded and we couldn't rely on the information on them anymore. So in other words, modern ways of storing information aren't to be trusted. So how can we get round the problem? Well, a group of researchers who are at the University of California at Berkeley, this is Alex Zettel and his colleagues, they've got a paper in this week's edition of Nano Letters, and what they propose is a nanotechnological answer to the problem. They make nanotubes, these are tiny molecular straws made of carbon atoms, which are many orders of magnitude smaller than a human hair, and inside those tubes they put something called an iron nanoparticle. And what they can do is to, by applying a current to the outside of the nanotube, Tube, they can make this tiny iron nanoparticle fly from one end of the tube and lodge at the other end and go back again. So with it, wherever they want it, they can put it by just putting a voltage into the tube. And this means you've got a binary storage system. It can either be naught if the nanoparticle's at one end of the tube or a one if it's at the other end of the tube. So that's a way of storing the information. How can you read it off? Well, it's very simple. You can measure the resistance of the nanotube because what they've found is that when the particle's at one end of the tube, the tube has a different resistance to when the, the nanoparticle is at the other end of the tube. So... Why does this solve our major problem? Well, it does two things. One is that they say, because these particles are so tiny, they can store one terabyte, one terabit, sorry, of data per square inch, which is about ten times the data density of present storage techniques. And secondly, they worked out how long it would take, by chance, for this nanoparticle to accidentally jump from where it should be in the tube 
to the other end, a distance of about 200 nanometers, and what they find is that it would take 10 to the 17 seconds for that to happen by chance. In other words, one followed by 17 zeros. That's a billion years. If you should want to keep your photos for that long, you can trust this method to keep this, the data safe. Sounds like the perfect way of making time capsules and perhaps we should send them off into space or bury them in our garden to make sure that everyone in the future, whatever comes along, knows what we are up to. Anyway, from the latest in uh, 21st century technology to the stuff of fairy tales or maybe for some people nightmares, the Komodo dragons, which I think are the closest living things that we really have to real man-eating dragons. At three metres long, these lizards that live on the Indonesian island of Komodo are fearsome enough, but now scientists have discovered that they have a toxic bite. Until now, it was thought that the key to their deadly bite was bacteria in their saliva. They bite their prey, leave it to wander around while the nasty bugs in their saliva infect um, that poor beast and so they eventually go into shock and the dragon comes back to kill and eat their victim, which sounds all rather lovely. But now it seems, um, because Stephen Rowe from the University of New South Wales in Australia and his colleagues went out and discovered that, in fact, Komodos do have a toxic bite. They published in the journal PNAS this week and they've discovered venom glands, including a dose of anticoagulant toxin that the Komodo dragons use to um, cause their victims to essentially bleed to death, which is, again, rather lovely. Anyway, the first time the, the team first used uh, computer models to analyse the skull of a Komodo dragon, and they found that actually they've got a very weak bite compared to a crocodile of about the same size. They really don't have much power at all in the down bite. Perhaps they're actually more adapted to, to holding onto a struggling prey and stopping from wriggling away. They then um, looked at the preserved head of a Komodo dragon and they put it into an MRI scanner, had a look what was going on inside, and they discovered a set of complex venom glands in its jaw and ducts coming out into their teeth. So that gave them the first clue that these guys really are toxic. They then got some of these uh, these venom glands out of a Komodo dragon. No healthy Komodo dragons were actually harmed in this study. This was in fact um, a Komodo dragon in a zoo that was going to die anyway. It was terminally ill. And they took out, they, they dissected out the glands and they used mass spectrometry to look at the chemistry of that venom. And they discovered that it's made up of a complex mix of proteins. And it's a similar, really lethal cocktail compared to other venomous reptiles that also use similar sorts of toxins. And uh, it's this kind of toxin that seems to cause... Uh, it causes the victim to bleed copiously, which, which fits in because humans, who unfortunately occasionally get bitten by Komodo dragons, continue to bleed for a long time, they know, after, after they've been bitten. Um, so really it seems that, uh, yes, these Komodo dragons are toxic. And and they aren't the only ones. There's another guy that, that this pub, uh, paper also covered, which is the Megalania, um, a 40,000-year-old cousin of the Komodo dragon, which was even more scary and enormous. They grew to two tonnes, seven-metre giants. They aren't around now, so don't worry. But we think they were also toxic as well, because they have, um, looking at uh, fossils, their teeth also had these ducts. So maybe this, this toxicness of uh, these huge lizards goes back a long way indeed. And if that's the case, does that mean then that all of the other... Uh, ancestors, successors rather, of those particular species, other lizards around today, do they also have these kinds of, of toxins in that's, their venoms? That's right. In fact, up until fairly recently, um, it, no one really knew that and we thought that they weren't toxic. But um, colleagues of Stephen Rowe, who put this paper out, previously put out another study in Nature, banishing that myth and showing that, in fact, lots of uh, goannas, different uh, lizards which are in that family that the Komodo dragons belong to, they're all toxic, uh, have toxic bites as well. So yes, maybe don't get too close to those lizard guys. And keep your fingers out of their mouths. Anyway, thanks, Helen. Now, also this week, scientists have published a paper in Nature in which they have looked at a long-standing question, which is, why is it that people who have Down syndrome don't get cancer as often as they should do? What I mean by that is that if you compare someone with Down syndrome with someone who hasn't got Downs of the same age, the person with Downs gets cancer only 10% as often as they ought to, compared with the normal person. This suggests that there's something protective about having an extra copy of chromosome number 21, and therefore the 231 genes that are on that chromosome, what are those genes doing and how do they protect against cancer? Because if we can find some interesting mechanism in there, that suggests you could use that same mechanism to treat people who don't have Downs but do have cancer. That was the question that was being asked by Sandra Ryan, who's a researcher at Harvard Medical School in America. And what her and her team did was to start with the premise, they pointed out that as well as not getting cancer, the other thing that Down syndrome people don't get is diabetic eye disease. 
Diabetics can get new blood vessels growing into their retina, which can cause blindness. But this doesn't seem to happen in Down syndrome patients, and so the researchers wondered whether the association between the two and the cancer might all be linked genetically, in that if you can't make very many new blood vessels very easily, perhaps the reason people with Downs don't get cancer is because they can't grow new blood vessels in their tumours very well, therefore the tumours don't get enough blood supply, therefore they don't grow very fast. So they set about trying to test this. They, first of all, homed in on a gene, which is one of those 231 genes on chromosome 21, and it's a gene called DSCR1. And this gene acts as a cellular off switch for another gene, which turns on the growth of blood vessels. So it does sort of fit. This is a gene called VEGF, VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. So to find out whether this story really fitted together, they took a mouse which had been made to have the rodent equivalent of Down syndrome. In other words, they'd added to the mouse extra copies of all of the genes that had duplicated in patients with Downs. And they then implanted into these mice tumours. And compared with mice that didn't have these extra genes, the tumours hardly grew at all. But obviously there are 230 genes there, so they don't know exactly which gene it was that was causing it. And to nail it down to this gene they were interested in, DSCR1, what they did was to then take the mice with Down syndrome and take away the extra copy just of that one gene, leaving all the other genes still present in an additional copy. And what then happened was that the tumours grew normally. And so what this suggests is that this gene, and they also found another related gene, are turning off the growth of blood vessels both in the eyes and in other tissues that might become cancerous. And as a result, tumours don't grow very well. And this is very insightful because it suggests that we could, now they've got the workings of this molecular pathway at their fingertips and they can begin to unpick that pathway, we could actually begin to see some new targets coming up where new treatments could be used and thrown at cancer to stop it. And it's quite nice, they've written at the end of their paper, it's perhaps inspiring that the Down syndrome population can provide us with new insights into mechanisms that regulate cancer growth and by so doing identifies potential targets for tumour prevention and therapy. I guess it kind of brings up the whole question of testing for Down syndrome in the womb and all that kind of thing as well and what other things we learn from these people who unfortunately have this condition. Anyway, I'm going to stick with uh, the world of human uh, biology and medicine for my last story and talk about this uh, latest paper which is about our brains and whether or not they actually tell us how we behave and how social we are. Do you consider yourself to be a people person? Do you crave the company of others? Definitely. And you warm and sentimental, Chris? I know definitely. You are, definitely. Well, if you are then it's probably, so it could be something to do with the structure of your brain. Graham Murray led a team of researchers from Cambridge University and Oulu University in Finland, and they discovered that the greater concentration of tissues in certain parts of the brain, the more likely someone is to be highly sociable. Now, earlier studies have linked the same parts of the brain uh, to the parts that process simple rewards, like uh, sweet, sugary tastes and sex as well, things that are very important for life and that we don't really have to question why we're after them. Anyway, publishing in the Journal of Neuroscience, the European Journal of Neuroscience, Murray and his team recruited 41 male volunteers, shoved them in a brain scanner, in an MRI scanner, and then they asked them to fill out a questionnaire to find out aspects of their personality. They were asked questions like, I make uh, a warm personal connection with most people, do you or do you not? And uh, I like to please other people as much as I can. And the results of that questionnaire give you something called the social reward dependence score. And the higher you score on that, the more social you are, really. And they found that people with higher scores tended to have a greater concentration of grey matter in both the orbitofrontal cortex, that's the outer strip of the brain above the eyes, and the ventral striatum, which is the deep suture across the centre of the brain. Um, and eating energy-rich sweet foods and sex also seem to be associated with those parts of the brain. And we can see how maybe this is showing us that those sort of rather um, basic, important uh, things that we need, sugar to keep us going, sex to hand on our genes, might have led to the evolution of these more complex emotions, sentimentality, affection for other people, which you, uh, on the initial looking, you might not think it's that important for you to be social, but it is, you know, and we, there are reasons why we must get on and, and uh, like other people and, and get along. But perhaps that's where this is. But really, this is the first, the first sign that there might be something going on here. This is just a link that these guys have uh, shown. But maybe it will come to shed some light on understanding why some people su suffering from some conditions don't know how to uh, interact properly. People with autism, schizophrenia, things like that. Maybe this will lead the way towards understanding um, when our sociality, our sociability goes wrong. 
Indeed, and of course we're going to be talking today about the science of the human race, where we all came from, and, and obviously so, being part of a society is absolutely crucial to human existence. So perhaps we'll ask Nina Jablonski, who'll be joining us later, to talk a bit about that. Thanks, Helen. Now, also in the news this week, researchers at the University of Chicago have identified a potential biological mechanism that can link cancer with depression. And we're joined by Dr. Leah Piter to tell us a bit about it. Hello, Leah. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So do tell us, what is the evidence then that people who get cancer get depression? Because obviously that's a pretty traumatic diagnosis to receive. Are you saying then that people get depressed before they get their diagnosis of having cancer? Well, basically what we know is that uh, patients with cancer have a higher likelihood of also developing depression at some point in their disease progression. So uh, whether that occurred before and is predisposing them to cancer or is due to the tumors themselves or you know other, um, other aspects of having the disease, uh, we don't know. We were, we were only studying right now whether the cancer itself can cause depression. How could a tumor trigger depression because a tumour can occur anywhere in the body, therefore at a remote site in the brain. So how could it trigger changes in brain activity? Sure. Well, what we hypothesized um, was that the tumours themselves can produce cytokines, which has been shown before. These are inflammatory chemicals that that drive the immune system. Right, exactly. And there is also a, a pile of research on how cytokines can access the brain specifically regions of the brain that um, are associated with depression and anxiety and emotional behaviors. Um, and they can, they can access the brain both humorally through the blood um, or neurally through um, the vagus nerve. So what did you actually do to get to the bottom of how cancer might be able to do that? So first of all, we're using a, uh, an animal species, a rat's, in order to isolate just the physiological impact of having a tumor from the psychological impact of having the disease. Um, we induced tumors in rats and had controls and then looked at their depressive and anxiety-like behavior along with some physiological measures of these cytokines and the stress um, access. So you give rats a cancer. Can you show that when they get the cancer, they do develop a sort of depressive or anxious-like syndrome consistent with having or or contemporaneously with having the tumor? Exactly, yes. That's what we did. Um, Basically, you use standard behavioral tests um, in these rats that have been used to develop uh, pharmaceuticals like antidepressants. And um, you have control animals, and we measured these types of behaviors and made sure that they only developed following um, the uh, presence of a tumor. And once you'd confirmed that the rats do seem to get depressed when they get a cancer, how did you then find out what was going on to make them feel like that? Well, we had we had two candidates. One were the cytokines that um, we have some information about associated with depression, and the other was via the hormone axis that regulates you know stress responses. And so we were able to measure cytokines in the tumors themselves, in the blood, as well as the brain in animals with and without tumors. And we also measured um, one of the stress hormones in response to a stressor and found that cytokines were increased in the brain if you had a tumor and your um, hormone response to a stressor was dampened if you had a tumor relative to controls. So the cancer is definitely inducing biochemical changes in the brain that might trigger depressive symptoms. We can treat depression, though. Why is it important to to have identified this problem, and how can it help us to make people who have cancer have a better outcome? Right. So I think one of of the things we were keying in on is that a lot of chemotherapies are cytokine-based, And so if you're having a patient that is displaying depression along with a cancer, you might try to switch the chemotherapies. Um, But it's also important because cancer patients that are depressed are less likely to stick to their, um, you know, medical program and are more likely to succumb to the disease. So not only treating the cancer, but also the depression is, is important for their well-being. 
Thank you very much, Leah. Thank you for joining us. That was Dr. Leah Piter, who is at the University of Chicago. She and her colleagues have published a paper in this week's edition of the journal PNAS, in which they explain how things like cancers can change the behaviour, and particularly to cause behaviours like depression, which, as she just explained, can have a major impact on how well someone does in terms of their therapy and their long-term prognosis. And speaking of references, you can also follow up on the references to all of the stories that we talk about here on The Naked Scientist via our website at thenakedscientist.com. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Helen Scales. You can also listen to us on Second Life. If you go to the Scilands, S-C-I-L-A-N-D-S dot org, and go to the Naked Scientist Mansion, then you can join the crowd of people who are assembled there listening to the programme. That's 10am every week, Second Life time, 6pm UK time. We've heard from Troy McLuhan, who's in Second Life, and he says, could the dragon venom be used as an anticoagulant for humans in small doses? Well, the answer is, Troy, yes, people are very interested in this, very question, and also from borrowing from biology, using the venoms of other creatures that have anticoagulant properties. Um, for instance, people are looking at the genes that come out of leeches. They've got a drug now called hiridin, which is a protein that stops blood coagulating by stealing what leeches use. This same thing could be used because we're always looking for ways to thin blood in a slightly less damaging way than using things like warfarin, which does have side effects. So I suspect there are certainly scientists right now who are looking at that very question. Well, this week's show is all about skin. It's fantastic stuff. It protects us from infection, stops us from drying out, and it comes in all sorts of different colours. Well, coming up, we'll be finding out how the different skin colours evolved. But first, Mira Synthillingham found out what happens when someone has no skin colour at all, a condition called albinism. She spoke to Dr Lester Davids from the University of Cape Town during the SciFest Africa. The skin is, is made up of a number of cells, but two predominant cell types, the melanocytes, which are the cells that produce melanin, which actually colour our skin, and also the, the keratinocytes, which form the upper layers of our skin and are really just there to increase the layers to protect our skin against all sorts of, uh, all sorts of injury. So the melanocytes are, are probably more important because they are the ones that give us the colour that you actually see. So that is the first thing that you see, really. And so we we need to look after the melanocytes and the keratinocytes because it is from those, if something goes wrong with those cells, they cause all types of skin cancers. Why is our skin protective? Why is it important for us to have it? The skin is the largest organ of the body. It is not only sensitive to touch and to the external environment, it is the first level of defense of our body that actually reaches the external environment. So in that sense, it is obviously very, very important for protection. The problem is that most of our skin, well, a large proportion of our skin is exposed to the elements all the time. And so we need to have an idea of how to look after our skin. Although your skin may be a different color, it doesn't mean that it is much more or much less protected because of that color. In general, the same rules apply how you protect your skin. Now, another thing you look into is diseases and disorders that affect our skin. So which of these do you look into? The one condition that often occurs is is a genetic condition called albinism. Because it's genetic, you're born with it. And the problem with it is that melanocytes are actually absent in the skin or the, the enzyme that produces the melanin is absent. And so the skin is completely pale because it lacks pigment. And that is obviously a problem because lighter skin is a little bit more susceptible to UVA damage or to sunlight damage. The cells that produce the melanin are also found in our eyes. And if you don't have those cells, your eyes become very sensitive. And so albinos, besides being ostracized in some of our communities in South Africa and in Southern Africa, they also have very sensitive eyes and and they need to look after that. The third place that that the melanocytes are missing are in the hair. And so they, they have red or very light brown hair. And that also needs extra protection because they don't have melanin. And so... They normally wear headgear or head covering. The other condition, which is non-genetic, but can be caused by a variety of factors, including oxidative stress, uh, stressing out, is called vitiligo. And here the melanocytes are predominantly disappearing, and so we get large patches of non-melanized areas of our skin, which are white. And if your skin's a bit dark, that, that looks very contrasting. And people often think that they have a contagious disease, which is absolutely incorrect. It is just the melanocytes that are not there. The nice thing about vitiligo, the 
the non-genetic condition is that there is treatment available. And these days, if you see a very good dermatologist, they can recommend treatment and repigmentation can occur after the treatment or after several bouts of treatment. What does the treatment involve in order for someone to get their colour back? In vitiligo, they, they give them a, a sorolin, which, which is a photosensitizer, and then they, they shine UVA light on them. That photosensitizes the skin and also photosensitizes the melanocytes or the stem cells of melanocytes that are left with the result that those cells divide and they start to repigment. The nice thing is that in hairy areas, the stem cells of melanocytes sit in a niche around the hair follicle, and this treatment, the sorolin plus UVA, stimulates them to start producing melanin. And so these patients, fortunately for them, if they respond, they will start to repigment and actually get their color back. Now, looking more into albinism, it's a genetic condition, but is it inherited? Is it due to mutations? How does it actually happen, and what genes does it affect? Albinism comes in in a variety of different types. One of the the common most ones in in southern Africa is called oculocutaneous albinism. This is a, a genetic defect in the enzyme called tyrosinase, and tyrosinase is the enzyme that the melanocyte uses to produce melanin. So that enzyme particularly is, is not working properly, and so no melanin is produced. And these days, with gene therapy on the, on the increase, if there are lots of research happening where they're actually looking at trying to correct that genetic defect, because it is in fact the way that tyrosinase is made inside the cell and where it actually moves to inside the cell that is being blocked. And so you don't get tyrosinase, the enzyme, doing its proper job, and so you get a lack of pigment. That was Dr Lester Davids from the University of Cape Town in South Africa explaining to Mira Synthillingham when they met up recently at the SciFest Africa what happens to cause albinism, the genetic condition where people cannot develop pigment in their skin, leaving them very open to sun damage. Thank you, Helen. This is Chris Smith and Helen Scales with this week's Naked Scientists, in which we're looking at the science of skin So some conditions can lead to people having no pigment at all in their skin or hair. But why do we see such a broad range of pigmentation anyway? Well, we're joined now by Professor Nina Jablonski. She's an anthropologist at Penn State University, where she works on why we have different coloured skin and how this came to be. Nina, welcome to The Naked Scientist. Good to have you with us. Wonderful to be with you, Chris. So tell us, first of all, why do we have different skin colours? Different skin colors are due to different levels of the pigment melanin in the skin. And people at the uh, equator or close to the equator tend to have a lot of melanin in their skin, and people distributed farther away from the equator have considerably less. But what do we know if we look back in history about how that came about? Because obviously we know people who live in my part of the world where we hardly see the sun one week in ten, compared with people in Africa where it's very sunny. What, What do we know about how those two systems of people evolved? The earliest members of our species evolved in equatorial Africa and had high levels of melanin pigment in their skin, which protected them from the very deleterious, harmful effects of ultraviolet radiation in the sun, which is present at great concentrations close to the equator. But as people in our species dispersed over the course of the last 50,000 years. We dispersed into areas that had much lower levels of ultraviolet radiation, necessitating a loss of skin pigmentation. So you and your ancestors living in Britain are actually depigmented people uh, compared to original members of our species. But why do we need dark skin? What actually is the pigment protecting us from? What is the sun doing? Because obviously we've all heard of skin cancer and the fact that there is this association between sun exposure and skin cancer. But is that the whole story? Not at all. Melanin pigment is tremendously good at absorbing and scattering ultraviolet A radiation, long wavelength ultraviolet radiation that destroys folate. Folate is a B vitamin that is critical for the production of DNA. And DNA, as you know, is essential for new cells, for dividing cells. And so melanin protects against destruction of the cell division mechanism. So this is very, very important because it allows, for instance, early embryos to continue to undergo rapid cell division in a very precise uh, way. Lots of cell proliferation is going on, and that is essential to survival. So melanin protects uh, your cell division mechanism. 
But as I move away from Africa and go to climes like Britain where we have much less sun exposure, what's the point of going white? Why don't I just stay dark? Because then I won't break down my folate and I won't get skin cancer. The reason that your ancestors underwent loss of pigmentation is that you still need to make vitamin D in your skin. Your skin not only protects you from a lot of stuff, but it's a vitamin factory. It makes vitamin D. As you get farther north, farther away from the equator, up where you're living, get about two months during the year when you have ultraviolet B radiation in the atmosphere that can cause vitamin D production. You need to lose as much pigment as possible to take advantage of that very rare UVB. And that's why you and your ancestors look the way you do. So that explains what the benefit to me of living at the latitude's idea of being white is. But what about if we wind the clock right back about six million years or so to the, to the ancestor that precedes both humans and our closest living relatives, chimpanzees? Yes. What colour would that ancestor have been? Almost certainly, we can be assured that that ancestor would have probably looked a lot more like chimpanzees than us. The ancestor would have had lightly pigmented skin covered with dark hair. When you look at all higher primates, including chimpanzees, the rest of the apes, and old world monkeys, our clo all of our closest cousins, this is the pattern that we see, light skin covered by dark hair. And what's interesting is that all of these animals have the ability to develop a tan on the exposed parts of their, their skin, for instance, on their faces and on their hands. So that ancestor probably would have had the same ability to develop a tan on exposed areas. It's intriguing to think that we were white, went black, and some of us have gone white again. Um, why did we lose our hair, though? Why didn't we just keep the hair if that worked well for that ancestor and stay white? Well, hair is a wonderful thing to protect and insulate us, but also it, it impedes our ability to lose heat when, we, when we're exercising vigorously. One of the things that primates do to keep cool is to sweat. And if you sweat a lot into a very hairy coat, you can't keep as cool as if you sweat onto a naked surface. And so... We think now that we lost our hair in order to become better sweaters and to lose more of our body heat through evaporative cooling from sweating. So basically, our ancestors probably lost their heavy coat of body hair probably around two million years or so ago. And at the same time as we did that, we increased the number of sweat glands, the output of the sweat glands, so that we're really prodigious sweaters compared to all other mammals, and we also, at the same time, gained our dark pigment in the skin. All of these things occurred more or less simultaneously. There have been some times when I've been standing on the bus next to someone I wish hadn't gained the ability to sweat, but um, <laughs> talking of hair, um, what about this? the very stereotypical Afro-Caribbean hair? What is the benefit of having hair like that? There must be one of having sh very short, compact, but very curly hair, very dense, curly hair like that. What's the, the evolutionary benefit of having that? Well, we have not done the, the number of experimental studies that we would like to, but certainly we, we can look at other animals who have similar configured uh, hair co coverings of their skin. And what we see is, the, uh, is that this curly covering of hair or feathers in, so in some uh, vertebrates actually protects the skin from excessive heat. And it does it by this, this mechanism. The very external surface of the hair becomes very hot when you're under the sun. Uh, but the, that external surface then leaves a cooler barrier layer of air between the surface of the scalp or the skin and the very surface that's being heated by the sun. And that cooler barrier layer is critical because it allows the scalp or the skin to lose heat by radiant, uh, radiant heat loss as well as by sweating. So basically, this, this curly, frizzy hair uh, keeps a lot of loft in it even when it's moist and thereby maintains this barrier layer that keeps our heads cool. 
which is good news if you live in Africa. But if you're a member of, say, the Indian subcontinent, where it's equally hot, but you have straight hair, how does that sit with that? Well, actually, as long as there is some kind of barrier layer, it still will work, although not quite as well. And what's really interesting is that there are some people in in the southern part of the Indian subcontinent, as well as in Melanesia, who have curly dark hair that was probably evolved independently from the ancestral condition of curly dark hair. Nina, we'll have to leave it there for just a second, but Nina's going to be with us throughout the rest of the programme. So if you have any questions for her, then the phone lines are open now. It's 0845 30 50 007, our text number 07786 201960, the email address chris at thenakedscientist.com. If you have any questions about the skin, the science of skin, how human races evolved and migrated and how this translated into changes in skin colour, then please do send them in. Bringing the facts to bear... The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist, and we're talking about skin, that wonderful stuff that keeps us healthy, keeps us dry, comes in all sorts of colours. And one of the things that skin does very well, if, if all goes well, is it heals if we cut ourselves. And what happens when skin cells are traumatised is that cells called fibroblasts produce fibrous tissue made of collagen, and that helps close up the wound. But inevitably, a little bit too much fibrous material is produced, and that can lead to scarring. Well, now a team at Bristol University has discovered how these fibroblasts are turned on by another class of inflammatory cells called macrophages and if the signal between the two is blocked it's possible to make wounds heal with much smaller scars. We sent Ben Valsler to Bristol where he met Professor Paul Martin. When our skin is damaged, wounded, fall over and scratch our knee or something, a whole cascade of events is initiated very quickly you form a scab and, and underneath that scab the tissues are trying to repair the hole in the skin and there are several layers to skin the upper la- layer is the epithelial layer and that's got to crawl forwards and close over beneath that there's a layer called dermis or connective tissue and that tissue when it repairs repairs with a scar so this response to tissue damage repair is not perfect now it turns out that the reason we form a scar in that dermal layer The reason we contract the connective tissue down is because inflammatory cells, white blood cells, rush out of blood vessels by the wound to kill bugs. As well as doing that, they talk to the wound fibroblasts, and it seems that one of their conversations, you know, sort of like a bad byproduct of their normal job, is to tell these fibroblasts to form a scar. So, what we attempted to do was to figure out what that conversation was and what in molecular terms the fibroblasts did in response to hearing that conversation. And we identified as a hot candidate a gene called osteopontin. It looked as though it screamed on in wound fibroblasts when they saw inflammatory cells. We had a mouse that didn't raise a big inflammatory response And when that happened, that mouse healed its wounds without a scar and didn't switch on this gene osteopontin. So there's a correlation, inflammation osteopontin, osteopontin scar, but that's only a correlation. It doesn't prove osteopontin's the bad boy. So so what uh, a Japanese postdoc, Doichi Mori, did was to knock down, in a normal mouse, this gene osteopontin. He knocked it down by delivering in a pleuronic gel. This is a gel that's liquid at cold temperatures. As soon as you apply it to the body, to the mouse wound, 37 degrees, it hardens up, fills the wound gap, and oozing out of it is an antisense oligo which knocks down this gene osteopontin. When he did that, he found that these wounds, which should have scarred, didn't. So that now demonstrated that the correlation osteopontin-scar was functional, that osteopontin was the reason they scarred. So then Tanya Shaw, uh, um, another postdoc in my lab, what she asked was, what are those inflammatory cells telling the fibroblast that makes the fibroblast switch on this gene osteopontin, which leads to scars? So she knew that there were a whole list of growth factors that macrophages are known to make. So she took some fibroblasts in a dish 
and she threw all of those factors one at a time onto those fibroblasts until she found one that caused the fibroblasts to scream on osteopontin. She identified one factor, PDGF, platelet-derived growth factor, that looked as though it could do the job. But the sort of the real tasty bit of the experiment was she then bathed the fibroblasts in an antibody that blocks PDGF. And then she applied macrophages to the fibroblasts. So those macrophages now pump out all the signals that they normally make in wounds, but the fibroblasts did not respond by switching on osteopontin. So that proved that macrophages are talking to fibroblasts via this signal PDGF, and that was what, in a wound situation, was telling the fibroblast to switch on osteopontin, and osteopontin was causal of scarring. So just by watching what happens with different chemical messengers and different genes being activated, you actually were able to spot several different angles of attack in order to allow wounds to heal healthily but prevent scarring. But what does osteopontin do in healthy, normal, non-wounded tissue? Are we running a risk of blocking a gene that's actually quite important? We absolutely are. Our impression is, and this is why you need to do you know, very careful, gentle clinical trials, certainly in the mouse experiments that we've done, these wounds that have been treated with an agent that blocks osteopontin heal the wounds better, faster and without scarring. Whether that will translate into the clinic isn't clear. Whether there'll be some downstream problem isn't clear. I can't even guess the sorts... Now, you ask what it does, you know, what the function of this gene is. Well, it's called osteopontin, osteobone. It's involved in bone cell development in the early embryo. It has some signalling roles in immune cells. Many of these, you know, multiple roles it has might be involved in, in the woundy situation. We don't know and we need to look hard. There are some situations where wounds will heal without scarring inside the mouth they tend not to scar at all and fetal tissue if that gets cut will heal without scarring could we look at these situations to see if there are other pathways we could look at that perhaps wouldn't run the risk of blocking genes that might otherwise be useful no look good idea and look we're a lab that comes from developmental biology we're interested in how tissues are built and how understanding how tissues are built in embryos gives you clues how they might be rebuilt in the adult. We're one of the labs that has shown that embryonic tissue doesn't scar. Embryonic tissue, when you damage it, doesn't raise a robust inflammatory response. And we think that's one of the reasons why it doesn't scar, is because no inflammatory cells turn up at the wound, osteopontin doesn't come on. So we're trying to replicate what works beautifully in an embryo in an adult, essentially. Now, you ask about the mouth, and that is an interesting situation. You're right, it is a place in the human adult body that repairs very efficiently, rapidly, not totally without scars, but certainly they're reduced. Oral tissue has a much reduced inflammatory response, a different sort of inflammatory response. Maybe that's because there's saliva in the mouth and in the saliva are antimicrobial activities and things, so you don't need such a robust inflammatory response. So it's your own body's response to a wound that means you end up with a scar, but blocking the gene osteopontin could stop you from scarring. It's early days yet, but watch this space. I had a question from Succubus Huntress, who's listening to us in Second Life, and says, why do some people scar more than others? Well, it's a good question, and we think inevitably it's down to overactivity of some elements of the immune system, and some people make more of these gene products that were being discussed between Ben and Paul Martin there, and it could be that this leads to more inflammatory response at the site of the wound, therefore more production of fibrous tissue by those fibroblasts, and that's why you get more scar tissue. Of course, you mustn't ignore the fact that if you get an infection in the wound as well, this can prolong the time it takes the wound to form and that again encourages you to make more fibrous tissue this is the naked scientist with chris smith and with helen scales lots of questions coming in on the subject of skin color and how human races come about we'll be coming to those shortly but do keep them coming in our email address chris at the naked scientist.com distilling the best science the naked scientists 
This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. Now, there's no kitchen science that you can try at home today, so if you're feeling experimental, then you can go to our website, which is nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science, and you can pick one of our other experiments to play around with there. But instead of kitchen science that you can try at home, we sent along Mira Synthalingham to meet with David Phillips, who's at Imperial College, to, an, to do an experiment that many of us have done a few minutes after we were born. On today's show, we're looking at skin and skin colour. And one colour babies can occasionally go is yellow when they're suffering from jaundice. And it's long been thought that exposure to sunlight, or more specifically the blue light in sunlight, can make this colour go away. So this week I've come to Imperial College in London to meet Professor David Phillips in the chemistry department. Now firstly, David... What actually causes jaundice in a baby? Well, uh, we all have a turnover of red blood cells. We destroy the old ones in our body as we make new ones. When the old ones are destroyed, they break down to a a porphyrin molecule called bilirubin. Bilirubin is a bright yellow colour, and in its normal form, it is fat-soluble, so it dissolves in anywhere in the body where there is fat. Now, in an adult, we have an enzyme in our liver and bile which converts that fat-soluble bilirubin into a water-soluble form which allows us to excrete it. But a baby doesn't have that enzyme because it doesn't need it in the womb because the mother does the excretion. So when the baby is born, it has a problem. It is producing lots and lots of this yellow color, bilirubin, but it doesn't have the enzyme and you have a lot of fat just under your skin. So that's where the bilirubin goes and hence the jaundice. Now you've got a very interesting experiment. We've got a, a glass baby here, filled up to its thigh level with a yellow liquid. What's this yellow liquid then? This is the authentic material which causes jaundice in newborn babies. This is bilirubin, which is dissolved in a a simulated fat solution. It really represents the, the jaundice in a newborn baby. So what are we going to do now in this experiment? Well, first of all, I'm going to give him a drink of water because I want to show you that the bilirubin will not migrate into the water. It will stay in the fat solution. So I'm going to lie him down, and he's a very unusual baby. He drinks through a funnel, and I'm going to insert the funnel into his mouth, and then I'm going to pour in about 300 millilitres of water. Then I'm going to hold him up, and you'll be able to see that the yellow colour stays in the fat solution. It does not go into the water. This is still water-insoluble bilirubin. Yes, you're right. So the yellow fat solution essentially is still there. There's some bubbles on the top and then a clear layer of water on top of that. So this baby has a problem. If he were left untreated, if it were a real baby, then this can lodge in the central nervous system. And before the 50s, uh, it it caused death in, in severe cases. Now what I'm going to do is I've got a little handheld ultraviolet lamp, which puts out actually quite a lot of blue light. And it's the blue light which is effective because the yellow solution here, the bilirubin in its fat-soluble form, uh, is yellow, which means it's absorbing the blue part of the spectrum and the red part of the spectrum. Blue is more energetic than red, and so it's the blue light which is the effective light. So now I'm just going to irradiate his legs with this blue light for about two to three minutes So whilst we wait for this blue light to have its effect, there's quite an interesting story as to how this was actually found out about in the first place. Yes, it was an Essex maternity hospital and a a nursing sister called Judith Ward who was in the habit of taking babies out into the sunshine and stripping them down to their nappies because she thought sunlight was good for them. On one occasion, she took a baby back in for inspection on the ward by a physician whose name was Kramer, And when they took the nappy off this uh, Caucasian baby, they found that where the nappy had been, he was bright yellow. And so they both realized that sunlight must have have converted the uh, bilirubin in some way. It was very quickly adopted throughout the Western world, even though the chemistry was not understood. Have there been any developments in understanding of the chemistry behind this? What we know is it's a very fast reaction. That is, when the light is absorbed, the reaction occurs immediately. And the most likely candidate is what's called a cis-trans isomerization reaction. There's a carbon-carbon double bond which is locked in a particular position with substituents on the same side of the molecule. That's called the cis form. And that represents the fat-soluble form of this molecule. 
And then when you shine light on the molecule, it unhinges the double bond, which leaves the molecule free to rotate through 180 degrees, and then the bond reforms, but now you've got the substituents on the opposite side, that's the trans configuration, and in doing that, you open the molecule up, so it presents a carboxylic acid group, which is water-soluble, which allows the whole molecule to dissolve in water. In the fat-soluble form, that carboxylic acid is buried inside the molecule, and so the whole molecule is hydrophobic. Okay, so you've been irradiating the baby with the blue light for a while now. Now what I have to do is to shake him violently to mix the two solutions up. Okay, let's go. go. And now I think as the two solutions separate out, I hope you'll now be able to see quite clearly that the yellow colour has now migrated into the water layer just through that photochemical reaction... Wow, now that really is extremely impressive. There's been a complete reversal. So up to the thighs, which was previously yellow with the fat-soluble solution, is now clear. And then the layer that was water above the thighs of this baby are now completely yellow. So it has been a 100% reversal of the colour. Now this little baby can do exactly what you or I do. And he is excreting the yellow bilirubin via his urine. You can now see that this is is quite a good demonstration of something that actually occurs. Of course, in hospitals you don't use sunlight to do this. We use an artificial blue light which fits over the baby's crib. And usually about a 30-minute irradiation is enough to convert the bilirubin. So essentially, David, if a baby is exposed to blue light then, the bilirubin will be filtered out through the kidneys then and be excreted in the urine? That's correct. In a water-soluble form, then it drains away from the skin through the normal drainage processes in the body, uh, down through the kidneys where it's filtered out, and then from the kidneys into the bladder and then out in the normal way. This treatment with blue light is temporary, basically, until a baby develops this enzyme that they need? Yes, a kind of holding operation. A normal baby will develop the enzyme within a day. If a baby is born prematurely or with any liver malfunction, which is really very common, then it might take a lot longer for the enzyme to develop. It's therefore not any good for adults who have uh, jaundice because that's a clear indication that there's something badly wrong with the liver. So this baby has now excreted its bilirubin out and it's now clear and healthy. Yes, and with any luck it has, is developing its enzyme and so it won't need this treatment ever again. So there you go, jaundice in babies gets treated with exposure to blue light, which is energetic enough to change the yellow bilirubin from a fat-soluble form into a water-soluble one and that's how it then allows it to get filtered out by the kidneys and go into urine. That was David Phillips, who's a chemist at Imperial College with Mira Senthalingam. And if you want to see what that looks like, we'll be putting some pictures of that up on our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash podcasts. And you've got to love the fact that the lady who first discovered that was a nurse, Nurse Ward. How appropriate. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. And now it's time to invite Diana O'Carroll back into the studio for this week's question of the week. Hello, Diana. Hello. Well, this week we've got a popular issue. Hi, this is Steve. Hello from Dubai. A good friend and I were talking the other day about a possible reversal of natural selection in today's world. She theorised that with modern society as it is, highly skilled, intelligent people are either having less children or putting it off altogether due to time constraints and lifestyle choices leaving those, while trying to put it nicely, less intellectually gifted, the job of providing the bulk of population growth. But is there any scientific evidence to back it up? Is the world being densely populated? I'm James R. Flynn, presently at the Sage Foundation in New York, but normally a professor at the University of Otago in New Zealand. The question of dysgenic mating, and by that we mean that people with lesser education are having more children than people with more education, would, if it were universal and persistent and not contradicted by anything else, probably be a problem over a period of 100 or 200 years. But it's not universal, and countries where everyone has a middle-class lifestyle like Scandinavia and where you have real educational quality for everyone, you don't have this trend. 
Now, you can always say, is there any chance that countries like Britain or America will achieve that degree of social justice? Maybe they won't. But there is the Flynn effect. That is, while we might be losing one IQ point a generation through dysgenic mating, we are picking up something like nine points a generation due to environmental factors, better schooling, more interaction between parent and child, a more cognitively rich environment. Now, that may run out of steam eventually, but we don't have any real reason to be concerned in the meantime. If IQ gains due to environmental factors stop happening, and we are silly enough not to make our societies more equal, then over a 200-year period, you might start worrying about the fact that the brighter people aren't having as many kids. The Flynn effect describes how IQ scores, on average, have risen over generations across the world. But IQ can be affected by education, and in the end, it's education that should prevent the imbalance. The exact definition of intelligence is often argued over. Is it emotional intelligence, or so-called common sense, planning ability, or mathematical ability? We had some rather heated comments on our forum about this one. Make It Lady pointed out the high rate of teenage pregnancy here in the UK, and RD noted that it might be an intelligent way of exploiting the welfare system. Oh dear. Um, Well, on that serious note, let's think about some pretty flowers instead. Hello there, Naked Scientists. This is Sarah Miskimmin from West Sussex. I've grown sunflowers in my garden for several years now and they always follow the sun round from east to west each day. But what I would like to know is do they slowly unwind during the night so that at sunrise they are pointing east again ready and waiting for the sun up? Or do they remain facing where the sun set in the west until the sun starts to rise and then suddenly whiz round to face it? Also, if it's a particularly clear night with a bright full moon, do they turn to follow that too? Many thanks, naked scientists. Do sunflowers have an uncoiling reflex or sun detectors? Let us know by writing on our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum or via email. That's chris at thenakedscientists.com. Thank you, Diana. That's Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. You can catch up more from her Questions of the Week as a podcast in their own right on iTunes, The Naked Scientist Question of the Week, or via our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash question of the week. Now, we're talking about skin this week, and uh, with us from the Penn State University is Nina Jablonski, who's an anthropologist specialising in this very subject. She's with us now. Nina, um, Lesinova has said, what about hair and skin colour in Inuit people versus Swedes? Because obviously there's quite a strong contrast there. Yes, uh, there's a, a great contrast. Uh, Swedes evolved lightly pigmented skin and light eyes, and due to a different set of genetic changes, uh, people living at the same latitude, the Inuit people, uh, in eastern uh, in eastern far northeastern Asia and in Alaska have actually darker skin than we would predict and dark hair. Now, the dark skin is very interesting because the Inuit experience very, very high levels of reflected ultraviolet radiation, long wavelength ultraviolet radiation from the snow. So their dark skin actually protects them from this high amount of UVA radiation. Their dark hair, we're not exactly sure, but almost certainly the dark hair of eastern Asian peoples was a consequence of small population effect, genetic drift in the ancestors of all East Asian peoples. So Nina, with that in mind, do you also see increased pigmentation or re-pigmentation amongst seafaring people? Because of course they'll get a lot of incident radiation off the water surface. Yes, and, and many of these seafaring peoples are naturally very dark and they have an excellent potential for making more pigment in their skin. So, yes, we need more genetic studies of these people so we can better understand how their pigment systems work. We also heard from George in Northampton and he says um, skin pigment decreased as we moved out of Africa, but surely we were wearing clothes by then. Oh, but we weren't. About 50,000 years ago, we were not wearing clothes. We probably had the ability to drape some skins over our bodies, but we certainly didn't have sewn clothes until about 14,000 years ago. So basically, we were mostly naked uh, and occasionally covering ourselves up. One of the ways in which we kept warm also was we had a vigorous shivering response. So we would be able to huddle together and shiver together to stay warm at night. But clothes came very late in human evolution. Which is ideal for a naked scientist, of course. Now, Nina, I've got this question from Pookie Amsterdam who says, well, why don't we just have a basal level of tanning? Wouldn't that just be better all round? 
Well, a basal level of tanning is a bit problematical because it costs a lot uh, in terms of your body to make melanin. Melanin is a big pigment, and where you need it, it's great. And for instance, if you live in equatorial Africa, you really need it, and so it's worth the expense. But if you live outside of the tropics where there isn't a lot of sun, then it doesn't pay off. And so that's why in some populations you have the ability to tan, but in very northern Eurasian populations, you don't have the ability to tan at all because there's so little UV. So basically, the body economizes. We also heard from Dan in London, and he wants to know how different human races are formed. Well, it's a big question, and one can argue that really there are no such things as human races, because human races are basically defined by us socially. And when you go to Britain or the United States or Brazil or India, there would be different groups that would be defined as different races. So in many respects, races don't exist. And what we do see are, are lots and lots of genetic patterns of genetic variation. And some of these patterns are related to our appearance, but those are just a tiny, tiny fraction of our genes that actually contribute to these differences in appearance. So we have tremendous amounts of variation that don't coincide with these classic racial groups that have been defined in various places. So the long and short of it is races are an outdated, ancient construct that we best ignore. <laughs> well said. Um, I've also got a question from Succubus Huntress, who's listening to you in Second Life, Nina, and says, what about beta carotene? Can that help to stop sunburn and sun damage to the skin? Beta-carotene probably has some beneficial effect by, by uh, preventing damage to collagen as opposed to protecting as a sunscreen per se. Because beta-carotene, the precursor of beta-carotene, um, retinoic acid, does uh, influence collagen production in the skin. So uh, taking beta-carotene could, in fact, have some beneficial effect on stimulating collagen uh, formation. But really, you don't want to get out in the sun and get that much ultraviolet radiation so that this reaction is kicked in in the first place. You should protect yourself from the sun, except for, you know, moderate, very, very short or moderate lengths of exposure. Don't ba bask in the sun. We got an email here from Lee Kale, and who says, if it happened that the African continent had continued migrating further south, perhaps ending up somewhere near Antarctica, maybe would that have affected human evolution? Well, the rate at which Africa is moving south, of course, is very slow. And so I doubt that this really would have affected human evolution because the timescale of human evolution is very short compared to the timescale of movement of the African continent. Which is a relief to know that. Thanks, Nina. I've got a question from Slack7639, attractive name, uh, who says, is there really more UV at the equator? I thought it was just hotter. There is considerably more UV at the equator and considerably more UVB as well as UVA. UVB is the type of ultraviolet radiation that begins the process of vitamin D formation in the skin. And there's a lot more UVA as well. So at the equator, you get bathed, absolutely drenched in UV, uh, and it's quite a bit hotter. So, uh, so, in other latitudes, you get considerably less ultraviolet radiation, especially the shorter wavelength UVB. Thank you, Nina. And just to finish off before we totally exhaust you, uh, I've got a sort of th question here from Natasha Singh, who said, do these blood group diets work? So I guess we can ask this in two sorts of ways. One is, where do different blood groups come from? And B, is there any evidence that eating different diets, if you have a certain blood group, has any kind of physiological evidence that it's any use? Well, blood groups, of course, are related to the, the types of antigens, these proteins present on the surface of our red blood cells. And we have, for instance, high concentrations of A blood type in Europe, O in Asia, B in, in the Mediterranean area, and so forth. And what the, the problem is, is that you find lots of geographic heterogeneity in blood types. And so if you go to the Circum-Mediterranean, for instance, you find not only B blood types, but A and AB and O as well. And so the idea of, of there being sort of pure blood types in any one area is, is not very good. And 
perhaps the most important thing is because of this, um, these blood type related diets basically are rubbish because in any given geographic area, there will be people with uh, various blood types that will have shared other aspects of their environmental history. For instance, many people living in Britain today, there will be a moderate percentage of A blood type, but also lots of other blood types there, they will have shared a common heritage of agricultural uh, background and eating dairy products and so forth. And let's say if they have O blood type, according to the blood type diet, they should eat a particular uh, type of diet. But in fact, those O's and A's and AB's all descended from similar people with similar uh, farming and dairying backgrounds. And so that, that recent experience, irregardless of their blood type, is going to be more important to determining what kind of diet they should eat today. So pay attention to where your ancestors lived as opposed to what their blood type is. Unless you're a vampire bat, of course. <laughs> Nina, thank you very much. That's Nina Jablonski, who is based at Penn State University, where she's an anthropologist working on skin colour. Well, that's it for this week's Naked Scientists. It remains for me to say a very big thank you to the other people who took part in our programme, Leah Piter, Paul Martin, David Phillips and Lester Davids, and, of course, to our wonderful production team, Ben Valsler, Mira Senthalingham, Dave Ansell and Diana O'Carroll. Next week, we'll be looking at nature's marvellous materials. We'll be hearing how scientists have borrowed the chemical that means that a bumblebee's wings can flap 500 million times in its lifetime. What they're saying is, well, a human backbone bends about 100 million times in a human lifetime and the proteins that are needed to do that are roughly similar to the bee. So can we steal from one to repair the other? We'll also be finding out why bamboo, despite being a very old building material, is definitely the building material of the future. If you have any questions on any of that, then do send it to me. Have a great week in the meantime. Chris at NakedScientist.com. Goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.